Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Okay, folks, here we are. I'm going to try and make the intro really quick. Some of you may have been expecting to hear the second part of the first conversation with Jeff. That's not going to happen. I decided to put it behind the Patreon paywall. So I'm saying thanks to subscribers. Thank you for helping me out because this does take a lot of time and energy. And as it stands, I'm not breaking even. I think it's worth doing. So I'm going to keep doing it. But I'm going to put some stuff behind the paywall every now and then. And that's what happened to the second part of the first conversation with Jeff. It's behind a paywall. So if you want to hear it, patreon.com slash taijireality. It's in the show notes. And I'm also going to put some links to other ways you can support the program. A crypto link or two, PayPal address. If you just feel like one show is particularly good and you don't really want to support any of the other shows, you can do that. Okay. For this episode, I'm going to introduce a new guest. This new guest is someone who I've known longer than any other guest I've yet had on the program. It's my great pleasure to introduce my friend John, who has been instrumental in opening my mind in a variety of ways. You'll discover that John and I see things quite differently, but nevertheless, it's wonderful to have a conversation with someone who sees things differently, and that is basically what we're doing on the Assembly of Silence, isn't it? Yes, no, here we go. Hope you enjoy the show. What I was expecting was based on the conversation we had that led to your inviting me here, Mm -hmm. which has everything to do with something that we both feel and that I think a lot of people feel, which is that everything has to be transcended in order to meditate clearly with whatever forces are governing humanity and the safety of the earth. And if there's a leveling that's going on for those of us who care enough to meditate and are sincere enough about it, that's all part of the Aquarian age uh, situation. There's a leveling in other ways anyway. And, and so, but the meditative aspect and how that relates to the dawn of the Aquarian age seems to be the general theme. Over to you. I think that's a really wonderful way to, to introduce it. And it might be interesting to kind of revisit that conversation that we had last time, which I believe started with a discussion of a lecture on Nietzsche that I had heard where it was proposed that Nietzsche was essentially saying that the uh, dismal state of the world can only be addressed through an aesthetic approach, something along those lines. And you had some really interesting thoughts about Nietzsche, too. So um, maybe uh, maybe we can revisit that a little bit and then start to talk about, you know, how this gets to a more spiritual practice. Because I don't think of Nietzsche as really being a particularly spiritual thinker, which is strange because he was concerned with that, I think, in many respects. But it seemed as if his his thinking was always stuck within a fundamentally materialist point of view. But uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not a scholar on Nietzsche. I don't know. So let me, let me send it back over to you and see what you say in response to all that. Okay, I'd have to say that I'm also not a scholar about Nietzsche. But the things that I personally gleaned from Nietzsche over the years and where I go because the work is so vast and complex says as much 
mm-hmm. about me as it does about Nietzsche, because you're absolutely right. He is to the left of what we would consider to be, you know, heart first spirituality. He's a bit of a madman railing against, you know, what's going on, but because his madness embraces philosophical history, and because if you can read him correctly, you can get so much out of him. Uh, you know, he, he's still, you're right. He's absolutely dealing with spiritual issues, but he's dealing from it from a standpoint of religion and philosophy and the way people behave vis-a-vis these much larger concepts that he's trying to explain to us. And he speaks in aphorisms all the time. Mm. So what that has to do with our discussion and where I'm led me is, is uh, uh, it's possible, except the one other thing that I have to uh, remember you saying that brings it back to our discussion is that he was talking about art, you say aesthetics, mm. as meaning it's something to fall back on. And that really is the theme, how much we've changed because the 19th century, the 20th century, the 18th century, you know, aesthetics and art to me were more meaningful than because now there's a situation here that's just a little out of control. Over to you. Yeah, uh, there's an awful lot to unpack there. I guess one of the things that occurred to me was that the characterization of Nietzsche as being someone who's railing against, in air quotes, uh, uh-huh. reminds me of a, of a thread that I was just looking at on Twitter about resistance. Um, so there's this idea that when we see something in the world that we don't like, that we should somehow or another solve that by fighting against it. Another air quote thing, you know? And so it seems that that, you know, in a way, uh, Marx is the same thing. You know, he was so uh, disgusted by capitalism that it basically impelled him to fight against it. And in many respects, it seems that Nietzsche was likewise motivated by the church and sort of religion in general. Although, if I understand correctly, I think Jordan Peterson makes this, this point. Nietzsche was actually also at the same time recognizing that Christianity was at the foundation of Western civilization and that if we uh, dispensed with it, quite a, we would probably lose our our uh, mm-hmm. our cultural and moral center and and i think that's mm-hmm. somewhat been borne out you could say um so there's an interesting contradiction in these characters who uh devote themselves to fighting against things that seems to be extremely problematic and somewhat counterproductive and which might be addressed by this more <clears throat> let's say, fundamentally spiritual approach that has a more accepting quality of all things, which is essentially what the Aquarian sensibility is. And it might be good to go into a little bit about what's meant by Aquarian. And, and so that, I think, is, is maybe one good way to frame the overall conversation, that what we're talking about is a, an entirely different approach to, quote-unquote, solving the problem. You know, and we could say that the great leveling is, is this event where the problems really get solved instead of us just kind of fighting against the thing that we didn't like that happened before that we were kind of that was the the oppressive envelope within which we found ourselves when we came into this world 
So over to you, because I think that that's a, a, enough of a mouthful. That is a beautiful mouthful, especially the way it ended, because it was wise of you to lead us away from Nietzsche and instead compare him with Marx or even Wilhelm Reich, mm. because Wilhelm Reich comes closest uh, to what we want to talk about today in, in presenting an unarmored, uh, you know, the Uberman is what uh, Nietzsche called him, right? Mm. Here as well, people are standing up and, and showing their volcanic uh, personalities, you know, uh, and being leaders that way, whether they were railing against or even when, when they were uniting people, there's still these, uh, Leonard Bernstein comes to mind because Leonard Bernstein was so charismatic and helpful and loving. But uh, you still hear the reports, you know, he had this volcanic personality and suddenly, you know, in the early 21st century, that's a pejorative, you know, all the things to hate about Leonard Bernstein, whereas before that was just all part of the man. He knew how to love, but he also knew how to hate, you know, that kind of thing. There was a, there was, there was, <laughs> right. there was a romanticization. A of man his, of passion. <laughs> that was just now being just completely trashed, right? Yeah. And that's all part of the great leveling, which is why it's wise of us for and anybody who's listening to this to parse apart these things that we're talking about so that we can indeed be better no-logo diplomats for the 21st century and beyond. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I guess it may be that every age experiences, you know, at its close, a great leveling. It seems like that would that would make sense, right? So if we're talking about grand cosmic cycles, then um, you know one period moving into another, there is that uh, property of Shiva where you can't really separate the creative and destructive process. It's it's uh, <clears throat> one thing is going to have to be destroyed in order for the new thing to come into being. So moving into the Aquarian age, it's interesting to try to get a sense of the character of the Piscean age because, of course. Christ was the the symbol of the Piscean age. That, that's correct, right? That's absolutely correct. And so the way that I've always interpreted that is, well, I don't know about always, but recently I've been interpreting that as being the moment where mankind realized the necessity for self-sacrifice on a whole new level. You know, the axial age in some ways, represents the point where civilization got oppressive to the extent that some saw a complete retreat from the world as the only salvation. You know, to, to live not for this world, which is a more Old Testament way of thinking of things, you know, God would, would show you favor by, by bestowing great abundance on you in, in the material realm. But in Jesus, you're living for the kingdom of heaven. On, on a basic level, it's denying the material and, and saying <laughs> that this is not the real world. Uh, we should be living for something far higher than what it is that's going on down here. <laughs> and so it's odd that, that what the Piscean Age turned into was like the Leonard Bernstein sort of man of great passions and this this bizarre libertine and libertarian individualism that essentially became an incredible engine of greed you know a rapacious hunger for the material world in some respects that follows the hegelian model right because you have the the abstract of the axial age represented in in Jesus and uh 
and Buddha, perhaps, right? Where there's this notion of self-sacrifice or a, of a detachment from the material that is negated by this ferocious attachment to the material. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Yeah, where do we go from there? Where we go from there is my sense that prior to Christ, we had an understanding of the duality of things. But that what you're saying and what I would agree with is that, is that in a sense what you're saying is that everything that happened that kind of sucks about the last 2,000 years was a reaction to Christ and the Christ head. Yeah. That all the most, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that I think is, ba that's what Nietzsche was re reacting to, was the horror of the yeah. result, you know, in the church. You know, I'm, I'm, my, my yeah. friend and teacher, Bala, he pointed out to me at mm -hmm. one point that when Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, he's making a joke. He's saying Simon means uh, one who listens and Peter means a rock. <laughs> You know, Simon's Rock. Simon's, Simon's Rock is that's funny, huh? <laughs> so what he's saying is that this guy just can't really listen to what I'm saying. So he's like a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Right. <laughs> right. So it's a joke. It's like, you know, he's going like, oi, this is the kind of guy who's going to like <laughs> bring what yeah. I'm trying to do into the future. It's the uh, oi, vey. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, here's something personal. I like that you're um, not wanting to dwell on the personal, but nevertheless, this is such an analogy to what you just said, which is that I'm the only male person in the family. It's the rest are women. It's just down to my mother and my sister. But mm. there's an idealization of my patriarchal role in the family in which I'm supposed to cut as much slack as possible. And it's because I'm the beloved that older figure who just will throw up his hands and you know in a kind of mock despair when his flock act up <laughs> or strippers <laughs> in any way you know i could be trusted to be you know exactly what i've always wanted to make myself out to be you know a benevolent person you know who believes in a benevolent god so if i'm going to be in the image of god i want that to be a benevolent god and to walk my talk that's all mm. and so uh, but nevertheless so so that is tipping over to the positive side, because of course we've had all kinds of wonderful male role models over these the last 2000 years to go by and people who definitely uh, dipped into the richness of the world at large, you know, from day one, like Goethe or somebody like that. Uh, but the Piscean age is indeed been all about bringing us to where we are now, which is not a refutation of the Christ head. The Aquarian age is also Christian, as as I'm sure you realize, that the Christ head is a uh, is is it all about uh, instead of a second coming, having us ascend and the Christ head descend, you know, into a link, so that we're all a bunch of you know walk and talking, movable, flexible Jesuses who've somehow <laughs> managed to make the computers just do the work for us. So what's going on right now? Because we're still in crisis. Well, that's certainly a better vision than what many people are expecting to happen. And, and I think it's, it's worth cultivating visions that are alternative to the nightmare that's quite often imagined. Uh, and I see that as being a possibility. You know, the, the universalism of Jesus's teaching uh, is 
central. It's, it's just so obviously one of the primary aspects of his teaching. And it's amazing how often that gets lost <laughs> within the churches. But, uh, but I do think that that is a fundamental aspect yeah. of, of the Christ head nature, I guess you could, is what you call it. Or I could say of the logos, you know, um, it's ah, because it, we're good. all children of God, you know? So it, the, the Holy Spirit is in essence available to all of us, regardless of who we are or our background or even what we've done. You know, because the potential for redemption happens at any moment. You know, it's always available to us in the present. So, the, the, you know, whatever it is that people have done in the past is is an opportunity for learning so that you can embrace the, the reality of our unity, which is essentially what the Aquarian Age is about. And, and I think it's obvious that people, at least on, on a basic level, are now beginning to recognize that this universality is baked into the cake. We're all on one planet, and the planet is now suffering due to our activity, yes. and everything that each of us does has an impact on everyone else and every other species. So we've got to start thinking of things in more universalist Aquarian terms, or we're fucked. And everyone kind of knows it, except for a few holdouts who, you know, insist that whatever they do doesn't matter. You know, I, there is a still a, a fair amount of that hanging on. And, you know, while there may be some ways in which um, the interconnectivity is not well understood, I think it's undeniable that everything affects everything. That just seems to be so obviously baked into the reality that we're living in, that the idea that somehow or another you can insulate yourself from that is is really the height of arrogance. It's a hubristic act. Mm. That's right. That's the, that's the reason why one of the things Reich railed against was the body armor and the way that it comes out in the leaders and also the little people too, that people who can't take the risk to self-examine and then do what needs to be done to break a pattern and have a brand new day to make it possible for them to feel from inside out. Because my sense of this whole situation is, is that people in denial and the, you know, say the energy industry or something like that need to be enthusiastic. They need to have changes of heart. The great middle will always slog on and we're seeing that without trying too hard, these things that you're saying, the interconnectedness is now apparent to people in a way that it wasn't just a few decades ago, say, the, you know, the 50s or the 40s. It was all really concrete, all really black and white and, you know, and places to color in. But now it's just a question of how much this really is the wave motion of the race that we really don't have any control over and how much we do have control over. But it seems that the evolutionary movement is about giving us more intelligent, conscious control, you know, over ourselves, even though we still have to take in bits and pieces of knowledge in increments, you know, over generations. I mean, the kids growing up today already know things take these things for granted in a way that we didn't. There's a lot of things that we've had to discover for ourselves over the decades. And, and anybody who's really learning and growing is also going to have to do that through their twenties and thirties and onwards up to you know, where we are, which is our fifties. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It, and in some way that suggests that at least some of us did some of the right work. 
because it means that there was some kind of a basis for them to have a jump on us, you know, that that the developmental process was still happening, even though the culture at large was in a, in the grip of the the demon of self-aggrandizement and and rapacious conspicuous consumption, right? So and and obviously that's the case, you know, because these conversations have been happening since you and I met and and we've been concerned about all these things our whole lives, even as we're kind of developing our understanding. So I think a lot of us who have been dedicated to this kind of conversation have at times felt as if our efforts were in vain when we look at the society at large. But I think that if it's the case that the younger generations are kind of already have some bases at a far younger age than we did for some of these understandings, then maybe we can say, okay, well, some of the work actually has had fruits, you know, so, you know, by their fruits, you shall know them, right? <laughs> the, the thing I wanted to return to briefly, well, maybe, maybe this would be good. There's a couple of points that I wanted to, to discuss a little bit. One is that the great leveling in some ways suggests the resolution of disparity. And, you know, right now we have this outrageous disparity happening within, you know, at the very least the monetary system. The monetary system is kind of what determines how a lot of other things get played out. And so, you know, the co concept of the Grand Jubilee is something that you know, when was the last time we had one? Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, like the 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 fact of these debts and the and the fact that you know the little people, you know those those who who do not have connections to the high levels of of the uh, elite classes are punished for their debts, whereas those on yeah. the high levels who have created so much damage and caused so much harm to so many people, they actually get bailed out, you know? So not only are, you know, it's a, it's a massive Ponzi scheme of debt. And so, but, but not only does it create this outrageous disparity, but the people who are at the bottom of the pile are the ones who suffer the consequences of it. And the ones who are at the top are always yeah. bailed out. So that's, you know, on some basic level, the, the great leveling that needs to happen is that, you know, in an Aquarian age, all people are people, you know, it's like you're not super special because you managed to accumulate a bunch of credits that were all fabricated and made up and you had some friends who bailed you out when you made some bad bets, right? It's like, why should those people get to live so much better than the people who work really hard and end up getting completely screwed by this system. Okay, so here's where I've got something interesting to say because you've rubbed me up against a dichotomy of my own. You've defined it for me, which is on the one hand, I can see myself as an incrementalist, but on the other hand, to get to the thing that you're talking about, to that vision, it would seem like it would have to take place, you know, like, <laughs> like a snap, you know? There would have to be such a revelation, which would, of course be contrary to the idea of incrementalism. See what I'm saying? Uh, say that one more time. I didn't quite get it. Because, you see, if people could just be people, 
And this is how we're getting through now. I mean, this is how people always get through. You know, if you watch uh, The Grapes of Wrath or read the novel, but it's very poignant at the end of the film when uh, they're leaving, you know, they're on the road again, you know, and they're, they're a little, be- you know, it's got everything's packed up, you know, it's just the middle of the depression and they keep rolling on. And she says, well, of course, you know, we are the people, you know, mm. I mean, if you have, and it's the same thing right now, you know, down there uh, at those border camps, say, there are people who have an attitude who can take it. And there are people who cannot it's still the story of people. And it's still the story of, of, of man's inhumanity to man because people are not being treated as people. And so because the world is so vast and there's so much hatred and so many negative cycles, it would seem like it would take a, you know, the second coming itself for everybody to just snap out of it and start treating people as people. But mm-hmm. that's not really how I think in terms of my everyday politics and the way things go along, whether it, I'm, I'm totally about incremental changes because that's all I ever see happening. <laughs> if you don't, if you catch what I'm, what I'm saying here. Well, uh, the, here's the question then. So is it possible to have an incremental great leveling? <laughs> you know? That's right. Thank you. See, that's why we're having a conversation. <laughs> it seems like a contradiction in terms. And we resolve that contradiction like so many other contradictions that we would love to resolve and which we do resolve. I mean, that's one of the great things about this is that I have found myself being able to resolve contradictions. And so this latest one, incremental how did you put it? Well, is it possible to have an incremental great leveling? I mean, I think that the argument for incrementalism makes a lot of sense, particularly if you don't want to have a disaster because large changes generally produces, produce a disaster, but incrementalism tends to, (laughs) tends to just sort of, you know, prop up the status quo. And so we have that problem there. So it it seems to me like what Mm -hmm. we're seeing now is that for every move of incrementalism that's made, there becomes greater indignation on the part of those who want to see substantial change. So like take the Democratic Party, right. for instance, is there's more and more people who yeah. are like, hey, are you listening? You're the Democratic Party. That means democracy. That means the people in the party might want to be listened to. You know, so it's it's basically like the Democratic Party won't listen to anyone who makes less than one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. Right. That it's just they're not they're not listened to. So Bernie isn't even acceptable, even though he's probably the most popular candidate they've ever had, (laughs) you know, and and he probably would have won the election if they hadn't shafted him in 2016. So the incrementalism kind of produces a a more volatile situation. And the Democratic Party, I think, in many respects, is falling apart. It, it, it makes no sense. They're, they're, the party itself is attacking its most promising candidates <laughs> who have the greatest actual popular support. So can, you know, in that kind of a circumstance, it's like, okay, if we were incrementally doing the right thing, <laughs> then... <laughs> You know, and gradually dismantling the power of of those who had taken too much, who were the greater beneficiaries of the age of rapacious greed and self-aggrandizement. If we are gradually mm-hmm. loosening that and, and diminishing their significance and gradually supporting yeah. the, the base, 
you know, the, which is why I, I like Andrew Yang, because I think that in the way the economy is, it's already all funny money. So we can't pretend that it matters whether you're you're handing people money or or if you're just handing corporations money. You know, it's like, OK, well, if you want to balance this thing out, give a little bit to the base yeah. and, and so that we don't have this outrageous disparity. Because the more that the disparity is concentrated, the greater catastrophe it will be down the line. So the great leveling, it seems to me, is it's going to have to address those basic issues. And, and I don't see that the incrementalism that we've uh, had thus far really addressing the, the fundamental point. Because it just always seems to ultimately head in the head in the opposite direction. I mean, we even got a guy who was recognizing the problem in his rhetoric, right? Donald Trump won because he was he was appealing to the people who had been dispossessed in society, and yet he gets into office and he passes one of the biggest giveaways to the rich in his tax program ever. So, so it's just. I'll tell you something, though, about, about the way this whole thing works from in a larger level, of, in the level of a huge eye looking down, which is that they see this imaginary set of eyes, how Donald Trump has shaken the whole structure up through his negativity, through his arrogance, has nevertheless is the rock and roll president in reverse, you know, <laughs> but it's still the same kind of thing. He's a revolutionary. He's made everybody disrespect government. And the truth is, you know, we, I know all about uh, hypocritical liberals who, if they could be tougher and meaner, would be just as exploitative as Republicans, but they have consciences. So they get into trouble because, you know, they're much more compromised, which is why the left is so much more interesting in terms of its infighting. The infighting on the right at this point is, is so sad because, I mean, the right has never been sadder in that regard. The right has never been sold out in terms of the Christian principles we're talking about the way it has by Donald Trump. So for, in the terms of Donald Trump being a radical, revolutionary character, he truly, hello, dog, he truly, <laughs> um, you know, is that thing and creates this leveling because we, there will be life after Donald Trump, or we'll be picking up the pieces and having to find a new sense of respect and honor post-Trump, not only for ourselves, but for government, too. Okay, so if that sounds like it wasn't the end of the conversation, it's because it wasn't. What happened at that moment is I got interrupted by, uh, by someone who needed my attention. And we picked up the conversation a little while later, and it went on for a long time, and I was thinking about, well, I've got to break this up into two sections. How am I going to do it? And this was just the natural place to do it. So I may end up offering the second half to the general public on the main feed, or I may end up making it available only to subscribers only. I really don't know at this point. We're going to find out in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember... Turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>